Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture. It's me, Damian Mason. Got a great show for you today talking about something that's obviously very timely. We're talking about China. And I have been on the record as uh, being anti-China for a long time and because we've become too dependent on them. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to do so with a great guest. His name is Todd Thurman. He's a Texas Tech animal science alumni. He's a Texas guy. He lives in Texas, but travels all over the world, principally to China. He spent 130 days there last year. His background is he was with uh, Cargill Pork on a business uh, and production side. He called it a business manager, but that's basically managing the business, which is pork production. For 15 years, he was a Cargill Pork guy. They went with Genesis, and now he has his own consulting business where he helps pork become more efficient. He's going to talk about the reality of China using pork as an example and whether or not my points that it's time to decouple and get the heck rid of China, uh, whether it's actually plausible, what can really happen, and then he's going to rein me in because he's been hearing me say for a while, screw China. All they've done is give us the Emerald Ash Borer, uh, <laughs> several strains of the flu, and lots of headaches. Anyway, welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, this is the Business of Agriculture podcast. You and I have uh, a little bit of history, mostly through social media. We do a little bit of a similar thing. We both work freelance as self-employed people serving agricultural clientele. Tell me what you do. So I spend my time working primarily with pork producers. Uh, we do a little bit of consulting, a little bit of training, uh, but both of those uh, the goal of both of those is to try to help them improve the efficiency of their operations. So we're trying to look for ways to help pork producers around the world uh, improve the productivity and efficiency of their operations. And so that means a lot of different things for different clients, uh, but it's really very much focused on the intersection between business and live animal production and that hands-on management. Yeah, so uh, it's always that thing, like when I've uh, spoken to a lot of uh, vertically integrated pork companies here in the United States, and then dairy, whatever, beef, it doesn't matter. There's always a, I think there's two mindsets. There's the production, like the person that knows everything about how to get milk out of a cow, uh, whether a cow is bad on her feet, what she needs to, you know, like they can just, they just got a feel for animals. And there's another side of the mindset that is, that's all great, but I'm over here making sure I'm getting our milk sold out on the forward contracting market, or I'm making sure that I've got my feed for my hog operations bought. You're kind of bridging the two because it's production, and with, without production, you have no business, but also there's people that go too heavy on just uh, how to get another piglet out of a sow, and then there's the other side that's like, yeah, but that's still not really just the business. You're kind of both. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important to, to connect those two pieces of the business, and a lot of the problems that I see really when you trace back the roots of the problem, it comes back to having too much focus on one side or the other. And, and I really think it's important that each of those inform each other and that they're uh, collaborating with one another and certainly not working against each other. It told me a long time ago, Todd, when I started out in comedy, I went to lunch with an old seasoned comedy guy. This is 26 years ago. I was just starting out and he said, are you a writer or a performer? I said, uh, 
Well, I'm both. I've been trying to write jokes and I've been trying to get on stages and perform. He says, yeah, I know, but what one are you? And I said, uh, I think I'm probably more the performer. He says, well, you're going to be finding out real soon. And you know what? Nobody is amazing at both. Some people are good at both. Nobody's amazing at both. They tend to be one or the other. I think it's the same thing about the business and the production of livestock. We used to say it all the time in the dairy business. You know, I raised on a basic West dairy farm. That guy had amazing cows, but his crops looked like shit. <laughs> he, he had really good crops. He had really good crops, and his forage was really good, and his corn silage looked amazing, but his cows, uh, not so much. He's over here 20% off of his production. It's a tough thing because it's hard to balance, too. It's, it's really it's kind of like left and right brain, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree, and I, I think that's a big, big key uh, to moving forward. You know, the agriculture is becoming more like a business uh, every day, um, and so some of those demands are are. Uh, it's really important for producers to focus on making sure that they're they're doing a good job technically on their business, but that they're also managing it like a business. Because whether or not they manage it that way, it is a business, and they need to they need to learn how to uh, balance those two pieces. Um, and certainly, like you said, some are going to be better at one side than the other. What's most important is that you have your people working together um, and and shooting for the same, shooting at the same target, um, so that you can make sure that that's a collaborative uh, approach. Yeah, I know what's what's good about you, and then and I know there's always jokes about why you know why do you get paid to talk, Damien? I'm like, well, go to a three day conference and watch the accountant get up and talk about how to fill out uh, expense reports, and you'll realize why I get paid to talk. Uh, and so it's the same with you. Why do I need a business consultant? I know how to raise hogs, and then you come in and say, oh, I just I just figured out a way. You paid me twenty grand, and I made you a hundred grand. You see how that works? I'm sure that's kind of the way it is, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and really, it's about helping people find those areas that they need to be working on um, and focus on those areas and, and, and identifying those areas that have the most impact and, and helping them identify those areas that they should be working on. And then in some cases, more importantly, not focusing on those things they shouldn't be focusing on uh, and then identifying those right things and then being able to leverage the resources that they have in those areas that are going to give them the most return. And that's really where you know, whether it's in China or whether it's here in the U.S., that's really where I spend most of my time working is trying to find those high leverage areas. I know we're going to get into the China things. That's what we teased everybody. But since this is the business of agriculture podcast, and you've just pointed out that it is indeed a business, it doesn't matter whether we've got someone that is selling uh, machinery or uh, growing uh, genetics, whatever we got that's listening to this podcast, it's the business side of it that they tune in here for. I want to kind of go before we get into that. You said something really smart. You know, and I've got my book, Do Business Better, and I'm always talking about the business side of stuff. You just said about focus. And it's really interesting because even good business people, uh, you just said, as an outside consultant, you can tell them, hey, you're spending a lot more time on this one cent return thing and this whole thing dropping dollars to pick up dimes. Part of your job is to pull them back away from the uh, – pulling back away from the project table and say, let's look at this from a bigger picture. You just spent this much time on this return, whereas over here we can get exponential amounts of return. Is that what the job is? Yeah, it really is. And it's one of the things I've learned over many years of consulting is that getting people to focus on the right things um, is really the, is really the fundamental key. And it's one of the bigger challenges as well, because people tend to 
focus on those things that they understand the best, right? That they feel like they can control the best, you know, and sometimes you get lucky and those are things that are, that are very impactful for your business. But a lot of times it's those areas that are a little more difficult to measure or those areas where you don't feel like you have quite as much control on where you really need to be leveraging your time and, and, and focusing your efforts and your resources. And, and everybody has limited resources. If, if we had unlimited resources, it'd be a lot different game, uh, but everybody has limited resources. And so the way we deploy those resources um, and, and how high leverage those activities are really is the difference between a struggling farm and a, and a successful farm. Well, you know what's really interesting about that? And this is my last point before getting to China, but since we are talking about business and people focusing sometimes on the wrong thing, I have said this forever. In fact, I haven't written an article about it yet, but it's coming gas prices everybody and her sister most of whom you know when you read that two-thirds of the united states of america doesn't have five hundred dollars laying around like if they had an emergency tomorrow they don't have five hundred dollars laying around it's like i'm not being arrogant i'm saying oh boy i'm a rich guy you stupid peasants like i've been poor also but by golly i had five hundred dollars laying around because i decided that's just must be responsible the, if two-thirds of America doesn't have $500 laying around, isn't it interesting that they focus on gas prices? Holy crap, you and I both know that if we bump into somebody that, you know, of that mindset, well, did you see gas is $279 down there, but it's only $249. Where I'm like, all right, $0.30, cents, that's a big discrepancy. You've just spent seven minutes of my time telling me about a $0.30 cent discrepancy in price of gas that you're going to use 20 gallons a week of it. That's $6. Okay. So, <laughs> Did you also notice, dear gas price focused person, every day on the way to your job, you stop and buy a Starbucks for $4.75. You're carrying on about a $6 difference when you just spent $28 this week on damn coffee. So I find it funny. It's like I always call it like the gas price focuser mentality. You've got millions of dollars dropping through the cracks over here, but you're going to focus on this $4,000 thing over here. It's like, yeah, it's like worrying about the gas price when that's not the reason you're not uh, well off. Well, and I think it's a, it's a great example. And I think part of the problem is, is you stand there while you're pumping that gas and you, you, you watch, that, uh, watch that go up, you know, and you realize what you're spending and it just feels a lot more real than a lot of our other expenses. You know, I think if people... If, if, if the regular W-2 employee out there had to write a check for their taxes every quarter like uh, business people do, I think there'd be a lot more people angry about tax rates. So, um, you know, I, I think it really is, has a lot to do with it. It's a great example. And I think a lot of that is you just see it. And when you see it and you can easily measure how it's impacting you, it becomes a lot more real. Actually, if you want to improve the savings rate of the W-2 employees, and it's not just them, it's everybody, the United States of America, if you want to improve the savings rate, pass a law that says Starbucks has to put up a sign out front of every one of their 30,000 outlets or 60,000 outlets, the same size as a gas station sign that has the price of a mocha latte frappuccino. And <laughs> everybody will say, holy crap, did you see that frappe latticinos are up to $4.89? Okay. Yep. All right. So his name's Todd Thurman. I introduced him when we kicked off the Business of Agriculture podcast. And now we've talked about business. We've talked about agriculture. We've talked about gas price mentality. And now it's time to talk about the reality of China. I went on the record in this very podcast in the last month and I said, folks, we got screwed. Uh, we fell for the idea. It was like they were this great big mammoth. You know, it's like the big, the great big mammoth that we think, oh, my heavens. 
You know, in sales, we used to talk about whale hunters. Instead of just going out and serving the clients and making sure that you stop by this mom and pop shop and service these clients over here and go whale hunting. Hey, we just landed China. What about Uruguay? Could Uruguay buy some of our stuff? What about what about Liechtenstein? Eh, who cares about them? By God, we got China. We got lulled into this trading relationship that was an abusive relationship, in my opinion. We were the battered spouse, and we were so silly and maybe so connived into this that we thought that everything in our dependent and our agriculture depended on China. By God, they're buying our soybeans. They got 1.4 billion people. I sat through a conference, Todd, that said, if the average Chinese person just eats one more cheeseburger per week. You know what that does for U.S. beef demand? I said, yeah, nothing, because they're not buying our beef. <laughs> so anyway, I say that it's time for us to draw even a bigger line in the sand with China. You go there for your business. You spent one-third of your time there last year. You say, Damien, not so fast. Give it to me. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and I agree with a lot of, of what you said, and I think the, the way we've gone about uh, developing that relationship um, has been a little one-sided in a lot of ways, but the overall relationship is very much mutually beneficial in my view. Um, I think there's some some issues that we need to address. Uh, certainly, some of those have, have been discussed as part of the negotiations. Uh, uh, intellectual property is someone that goes over there and shares intellectual property, then that's a, obviously a big concern of mine, um, and that's something I've been very disappointed hasn't really entered the conversation to this point. Um, but I do think it's an, in, uh, an important, you know, the most important bilateral relationship in the world right now. Um, and, and just because of the volume, just because of the, the number of people and the size of that market, I think it would be very difficult for us to ignore that. Um, and so I guess some of it depends on what your definition of, you know, decoupling or drawing that line in the sand because uh, certainly there's some issues that need to be addressed, uh, but I really feel like there's a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity for U.S. businesses in China uh, operating in China, and also a lot of uh, trade opportunity. You know, just those U.S. businesses operating in China, it was estimated in 2019 that they generated about 550 billion dollars in revenue. Wait, so that's wait, not wait, even considering wait, wait, the trade back and forth. Wait, wait, wait. Give me. I want. I want some numbers again, just because the listener to this needs to know. Give me that, that stat one more time, please. Yeah, it's almost $550 billion in revenue for U.S. companies operating in China. So that's the revenue that was generated in China by U.S.-owned companies. Um, and so and that doesn't include about, any of the trade. And we're talking about a company that makes bumpers for cars or uh, rubber gaskets for refrigeration units, whatever. It had nothing to do with ag per se. It could be ag. Right, that's, that's everybody from Apple to uh, any other, anybody else that's manufacturing something there. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a significant amount of money and that not even touching the, the, the trade that goes back and forth between the country. Okay. All right. So, uh, I, I get it and I, I, I'm playing the devil's advocate kind of, but I'm not too much because like I said, I, I see this as an abusive relationship that we, uh, we decide we couldn't live without China. When you decide you can't live without somebody, especially when it's the abusive sort, uh, they're going to take full advantage of it. China does not want to be our customer. They want to be our replacement. I've been on the record of saying that they're spending $1.3 trillion, which in the scope of things, when we're throwing around $2 trillion, just arbitrarily for the heck of it here in the United States, 1.3 trillion looks trite, looks, looks, 
teeny by comparison. They're doing $1.3 trillion as part of their Belt and Road Initiative, which is their infrastructure plan to go to places like Brazil or Africa and put in infrastructure so they can then get their allocate or extract or even exploit their own resources from those places. China has played us. They thought that we couldn't live without them. We're proving that we have and can. Can we live without them, period, Todd? Um, you know, certainly we could. Um, you know, we're, we are the biggest economy in the world, um, and, and we, we certainly could live without China. But I think uh, in today's global economy, you know, we, we see so many comparisons back to the Cold War. And, and what I've been trying to explain to people is the new Cold War, if that should happen, is going to look a lot different than the old Cold War. Um, it's a much different uh, global environment that we're in. And so you've seen some of these discussions with the coronavirus talking about, you know, comparisons to SARS and how different the world is now than it was in 2003. And that's certainly true. The number it's of people seven, only are moving from years, place to place. In only 17 years, we became more global to the point that if we just shut down the border with, not just shut down, shut down trade, uh, the economic multiplier effect now has an issue. Is that what we're talking about? Right, exactly. And so I, I think that the environment that we're operating in um, is just completely different. And so instead of just drawing a line and saying, okay, well, we're going to treat, we're going to treat uh, China like we treat North Korea or Iran or uh, Cuba uh, because of the already existing integration between our two countries and also between us and, and many countries around the world and between them and many countries around the world, uh, taking that apart would be quite painful. And I think a lot more painful than what people realize because we're a lot more integrated than what people realize. Okay, so the thing is, who has the upper hand? I believe that they, for a while, had the upper hand because they put the hurt on us because we demanded their cheap crap. And also, we were baited into taking a whole bunch of our manufacturing over there. So do they have the upper hand right now or do we, as the global economy uh, superpower? Well, I think it, it depends on how you define that. And I think they have the upper hand in some ways. We have the upper hand in some ways. And then should we drift apart, I think there would be a shift over time where uh, it would be uh, more advantageous or more disadvantageous for one or the other based on what time frame you're discussing. So, you know, one, I think learning that we're all going to uh, take away from this coronavirus experience is that we need more diversification in our international supply chain. Clearly, that is, uh, is is something that we have to take away from this. So, you know, I can. There's two examples that are that are very timely. One is ASF. Uh, when when China broke with ASF, a lot of people in the U.S. who want to protect themselves from getting ASF started looking at their risk factors. And one of those risk factors is speed. Now, it's debatable on how big a risk that is, but it has been well established in the research that feed and feed ingredients represents at least some risk of transferring the virus, even in a uh, shipment from China to the US. Um, and so that's a certain amount of risk. And so a lot of integrators went to their suppliers and said, okay, we don't want anything from China. And then the industry found out a little secret that nobody else really knew. And maybe even a lot of the people that were doing business uh, in this area didn't really fully understand. And that's, that is that, that for the most part, there are some ingredients that only came from China or that such a high percentage came from China that it was completely impossible to avoid that supply. And so they would say, okay, well, we can, we can avoid buying these ingredients from China, but there's these two or three ingredients that are absolutely essential, and we don't have anywhere else to go 
to get those, okay? And so we can take some of those out and, and, and harm your performance. And then there's some of them like vitamins and minerals that we literally can't take out. And so we were, we were literally tied to China. And I say, so I think certainly in those types of ways, we have, to, we have to look at that and say, you know, that's an unacceptable risk. And it, it doesn't matter if you're talking about China or, or anywhere else in the world, to have an international supply chain that is that, you know, one-sided in terms of, of that supply uh, is unacceptable. And moving forward, we've certainly got to diversify uh, those supply chains. You're seeing something similar on the human side where a lot of people are saying, hey, we get a lot of our medicines from China, you know, yeah. and so obviously that's a, that's a huge leverage point. And, and whether or not you feel like China is, uh, is an adversary or not, you know, whether they're our enemy or not, either way, having all of that risk in, in one area, whether it's a natural disaster or, or a political problem or, or a pandemic like we're dealing with now, um, that's, that's a substantial amount of risk. And we have to really sit back and, and reevaluate our supply chains, our global supply chain. Well, that's what we said. We found out with this whole coronavirus thing, Todd, that it was 80% of more of the commodity grade stuff. Now, I'm not ever pretending to be a pharmaceuticals, uh, you know, expert, but they were saying like, not, not the most cutting edge stuff, but maybe like your, I don't know, amoxicillin or something like that. Some of the more, uh, grandfathered, if you will, uh, stuff that we've been making for a long time. Apparently then we just said, it's such a cheap product. The R&D has already been paid for. Uh, it's commodity grade human medicine. Let's just let it all be made in China so we can actually make a few cents on it. And then when the American people find out, wait a minute, 80% of this crap is made in China? Yeah. I said a long time ago on this podcast, I said it four weeks ago, uh, years ago on stage, I said it, I said the old saying in business, when you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank owns you. When you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, you own the bank. That's China. When they got to where they thought that we, that they owed us a hundred million dollars, it's the old thing of, do they own us? They thought they did because they have so much of our cheap crap. Like you said, good luck. We'd like to not have to, but too, we let too much of this go offshore. Now we're at the point where we can't even make hog feed without it coming from them. Try buying a, try buying a, a string of Christmas tree lights and say, but I don't want them to come from China. Same thing, right? Right, for sure. You know, and I, and I think as we, as we think through this, certainly, uh, you know, you're starting to begin to see some people uh, try to decide what are going to be the takeaways and why is the world going to change after uh, this coronavirus issue? And certainly that's one of them. Uh, again, I think it, it has, it's China's an easy example there, but there are plenty of other examples. Um, and so, you know, in the future, I think businesses and, and governments are going to have to really take a closer look at that and make sure, you know, if you have 10 or 15% of your uh, dependence on a, on a product from a certain country, you know, that's probably acceptable, but 80 or 90 or certainly 100% is unacceptable. And, 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 and that's at an area where I think we have some advantages in that relationship with China. A lot of what they do, we can get easily done other places. Now, just unplugging that and plugging it in somewhere else immediately is not, is not very easy to do. But, you know, those are not really sophisticated manufacturing operations. So those things that we're getting from China in a lot of cases could just as easily been done in Bangladesh or Indonesia or, or other places around the world, even Latin America, if we wanted to get that closer to home. So, uh, you know, a lot of those things that they offer are much more easily replaced. When you look at what we offer to China, uh, which is a lot of, a lot of that is based on natural resources that are not easily, easily replicated. Now that doesn't mean they can't 
go somewhere else for that. But when you look at uh, how effectively we can and efficiently we can raise these these uh, uh, products, uh, that becomes much more difficult to replicate somewhere else. Right. And so, yeah, and by the way, dear listener, and if you're a viewer, I should point out that if you are a listener to the Business of Agriculture podcast, starting here in the last uh, two months, we have been putting up the videos of this on my YouTube channel. I encourage you to check it out. There's a playlist. It just says Business of Agriculture podcast. There's another playlist that says Doing, Do Business Better podcast playlist. D. Mason Comedy is the YouTube channel, or you can just go on YouTube and type in Damian Mason and you'll find us. So you can not only listen to this when you're driving around, you can view it. You can see this attractive guy in his swine tex vest. That's Todd Thurman I'm talking about. And his swine tex vest, because that's his company. He's a professional consultant in the swine industry. So you can be watching this as well as listening to this. And please subscribe to both the podcast, wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe on YouTube. It'll help you uh, get notices. And it'll really help me out a lot with visibility so more people can see this. Okay, speaking of the China thing that I'm out here saying, it's time for us to be done. It's time for us to just realize it's an abusive relationship. Screw you, get the hell out of here. Here's the restraining order. Don't come on my property. We're done with you, China, out. That's, that's where I think we need to start moving toward. Now I'm being a little facetious. I have an agricultural economics degree. Todd, I know that it is a global economy, but to a large degree, it needs to be almost like uh, that relationship where you say, yep, you used to be in charge of me, but you know what I did? I went and reach, I rearranged my business, I reinvented my business model, and now we do business, but I don't need you. You're, you're the, you know, the exclusive customer that I used to have, I don't need that anymore. How many years until we still do things, but we aren't as screwed by them? I think it happens fast. I think coronavirus was the, the catalyst that we needed. Well, and I, I, I think it, it certainly could accelerate whatever that path is. You know, if you go down, I don't see really a path where we become more dependent on each other, but I do see two paths. And one is what you described, which is, you know, I, I hate to use the term decoupling and certainly the the administrations on both sides have tried to avoid using that term. But hey, wait, Todd, did you like the word restraining order? <laughs> kick them, we kick them out. We kick them out and we file a restraining order. Did you like that? We, hey, you lazy son of a bitch. You're out of my house now. You're abusive. And now here's the sheriff and here's the restraining order. Do you like that? Uh, yeah, I'm a little wary of that, uh, primarily because I think it'll be a really ugly divorce. So, um, uh, but certainly, you know, heading down that path is, is certainly a, a one, one way to go about it. I think there's another path where we remain economically uh, fairly entangled um, and that there's enough balance there that that makes sense. And so, you know, I hear a lot of times that, you know, China described as our economic adversary. And I, I think they certainly could be. Um, but I think they're more of an ideological adversary, okay? Um, and I think that's a balance that we can that we can maintain as long as it is more mutually beneficial. And if we can address some of these fundamental issues like the currency manipulation and the IP protection um, and some of those things, I think we can continue to have a mutually beneficial relationship on the economic side and then maintain our differences on the on the political and the on the political and the ideological side. Um, and that seems to me uh, a path that, that is, is not just reasonable, but maybe even likely. Um, you know, just to use the, the pork industry as an example, you know, the pork industry has become very dependent on exports, okay? Good, bad, or indifferent, uh, we've become very dependent on exports. As recently as the early 90s, we were a net importer of pork in the U.S. 
Uh, and then that really started to change in around 2004 to 2005. And so now we've gone up to, uh, from being a net importer in the early 90s to nearly 30% of our product being exported. And you know, so most people, by the, way, about, by the way, Todd, uh, I think that's really important for our listeners because markets do change. Global markets change local markets. And that's why I am being a bit facetious when I say, you know, restraining over China. But the reality is I so much agree with what you're pointing out here that we already are ideologically different. They're a communist uh, dictatorship. They are a top-down ruling company, a country. You know, one to two percent of that country has privilege and sends their kids to Harvard, which I think should be disallowed. I do believe that we should not let Chinese people come to our country and steal our technology and steal our information and utilize our education system when they won't even let the Wall Street Journal have uh, reporters in Beijing. Different story. We are ideologically very, very different. It doesn't mean we're ideologically different with a lot of countries. We'll still let them buy our soybeans. Um, bigger thing, I think, is that we, this is a big wake-up call for us to say, boy, we did get too dependent on them. It's the old bank example, million dollars versus $100 million, who owns who? And so we can still do business, just like I do business with customers sometimes that uh, I don't have a lot in common with but it's business, they need my services, I'll take their money, I, you know, it's all fine. We all have that. Decoupling is definitely too hard of a word or too much, um, but a more detente, almost like what we used to have when the Cold War you talked about. In the old days, we talked about United States and Russia, you know, it's detente, we'll agree to disagree kind of thing, and, and that's how it'll work. Um, they still buy some of our stuff, we still buy some of their stuff, I see us buying less of their stuff, and I see less of our companies going over there and opening up manufacturing. I see agriculture being the United States' biggest seller to them because of the natural resources you talked about. I see some manufacturing coming back home for national defense and independence purposes. What else am I missing that I don't see? Uh, you see pork. You see soybeans. What else do you see? Well, you know, I, I think that's that's clearly the, the the main area that I'm focused on as we as we look back over the past year and we saw, you know, our by our estimate, 65% of the Chinese hog herd disappear uh, due to African swine fever, and the European Union had a field day, um, and you know, so they uh, their exports, I think, 50% of their exports uh, were to China during that time period. Um, so that was a huge opportunity for them and U.S. producers, which are more competitive than their European counterparts, basically, for the most part, had to sit on the sidelines. Now, we look at, at those uh, exports to China, and they were still huge records, right, even despite the, the tariffs that were in place. Um, but you look back on that, and you say, wow, what well, what might have been there in terms of access to the to the Chinese market? And so, you know, I certainly think as we look at that, um, you know, certainly a completely a complete decoupling would be very painful. I mean, you'd have to look at doubling our trade relationship with Japan on the pork side to replace what we lost, even even 2018. Not even using the inflated numbers from 2019, but you'd have to double, almost double, the uh, relationship that you have with Japan um, in order to replace what you lost in China. You'd have to, you know, multiply uh, our relationship with all of Central America by about five times. To replace that so it'd be very difficult to replace that and really what you're saying there is if you're not going to have access to Chinese the Chinese market it's 50% of the pork consumption in the world it's just it's a huge chunk it's hard to wrap your mind around um, that 50% of the pork that's consumed in the world is in China um, 
our model is not sustainable if that's the case. I mean, we have to shift as an industry away from this, um, you know, model where we continue to, we're not getting really bigger in terms of expanding, I mean, modest expansion, but really where that, that comes from. And the reason that we're exporting 30% now and we were exporting, you know, 0% uh, in the 1990s is because we were becoming more efficient. The trend's going to continue. So as we become more efficient, we either have to find the market for that, and certainly there are some markets out there, and we've done a great job as an industry of tapping all those potential markets, but I just don't think you can ignore, like you could say, we lost Russia and we replaced it, but Russia was minuscule compared to China. So sure. um, you know, I think the global globalization situation and just the size of that market in China make it uh, a much different uh, proposal there. All right, I gave you Todd Thurman, I gave you my predictions. I said, manufacturing summit comes back home, much of it goes to other countries. Our companies are going to, if not on their own, by government decree, they're going to say, you can't be going over there just giving up our trade secrets anymore as a condition of doing, you know, we're going to look at, we're going to begin to look at, because of coronavirus, uh, China, we always should have been more skeptical. We got a little bit lulled into this. I say we're going to manufacture and come back home. We're going to change some trade um, practices. Uh, we're going to be a little more protective of our IP. And we're going to obviously get the agricultural products moving. And if we don't, then I think that that's going to be a big stumbling block. You look a year and a half down the road. What do you see with our relationship with them? Well, I think it hinges very much on those issues around intellectual property. Um, and, and some of those technology issues. If we can get those issues resolved, which is uh, admittedly extremely difficult, if we can get those issues resolved, I'm quite optimistic um, that we're gonna continue to see expanded opportunity in that relationship with China. I do think it's gonna look different. I, I, you know, Like we talked about before, I don't see us uh, being dumb enough to get sucked into uh, uh, being completely dependent on it as a sole supplier for any necessary commodities. Uh, certainly any that are strategically important. Uh, so we're definitely going to see some changes there, but there's plenty of opportunity. And you see if, if they come anywhere close to their, uh, to their uh, agreement around that phase one deal, um, that's a, a serious expansion of, you know, even only did half of that, uh, that's a serious expansion of their uh, buying of agriculture goods. And so I think that's, that's optimistic. I think getting to half of what they agreed to in phase one would be a big, huge achievement because I believe they lie and they cheat and uh, China will has no intention of fulfilling phase one. If they fulfill half of it, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, uh, there'll be some excuse. Last question for you, Smithfield. We let the Chinese come over here, what, five years ago and buy Smithfield. Uh, was that a mistake? Um, I don't know. I, I think uh, I definitely see some advantages and disadvantages there. Um, as a as an industry professional um, and as an American, I see interaction between people in China and the U.S. as a, as a positive thing. Um, I think you know we have to be very careful about how that that happens. Um, but when I get a chance to bring Chinese people here to the U.S., I think that is a positive thing. I think they almost always leave here with a positive impression of the U.S. And so um, you know, certainly I know that I have some time in China, and and I'm. Uh, certainly a fond of the Chinese people, uh, even though I'm sometimes frustrated with their uh, government. Um, but certainly my, my mind is more open um, to where, you know, ways that we can collaborate. And so I think, uh, I think keeping those doors open is important. And I think uh, as we move forward, I think if we can 
we can find a way to navigate what we talked about earlier, these ideological differences, uh, but still kind of keep those lines of communication open. I think that's beneficial for everyone in general terms. And again, the devil is in the details and exactly uh, how we address some of those issues is, is uh, going to be very important. But as a general rule, I think that those lines of communication are, are positive, both for the U.S. and for China and for obviously everybody else that's involved as well. Speaking of positive, you optimistic about the future of the business of agriculture in the United States of America? Uh, I really am. I, I think we, we do a better job than anybody else in a lot of different ways. Uh, we're very efficient. Um, we're very, we have a very high level of professionalism and we have a lot of natural resources to, to, to draw on. Um, and so I think, you know, you start looking at stacking up advantages and disadvantages and we just have a ton of advantages here. Um, and so I think, uh, uh, I'm really optimistic overall. Um, I think we have to be very careful, and I think we have to make sure that we stay on top of some of these trends. You know, some of those trends that you talk about um, in your most recent book, I, I think, are really important. I think the, the industry opening their minds a little bit um, and trying to see things a little bit differently um, is going to be really important. And quite frankly, how we navigate this global uh, industry. Um, and how we uh, navigate these global opportunities will have a lot to do with that. But uh, I'll put American farmers up against anybody, and, and I'm very optimistic from that standpoint. Um, and really, you know, that's that's what I've spent my time doing is taking a lot of this expertise, you know, and exporting it to other areas. And I think as we start to try to meet these challenges, I think uh, uh, we're at little risk of having uh, China take over uh, in terms of technical expertise in, in agriculture. Um, but certainly the world can fit from a little bit better efficiency. His name is Todd Thurman. He's a good dude. I keep up with him on LinkedIn. You can do the same. It's Thurman, T-H-U-R, like Thursday, man, like man and woman. Uh, his company is Swine Tex, swine like a pig, and Tex like the state where he operates out of, Texas. Swinetex.com, that's where you can find him. Anything else about finding you? No, that's great. Uh, we're on uh, Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, do a little bit on Facebook, but uh, probably LinkedIn is the best way to reach out to me or uh, go to the website and all our contact information. All right. Thanks for being on here. By the way, he mentioned my book. That's Food Fear, written by me, Damian Mason. It was just released in December. It's why you should uh, stop being afraid of what you eat and uh, start enjoying your dinner. That's actually not the subtitle. It's why how fear is ruining your dinner and why you should celebrate eating. I wrote it. I mean, it's you know, I, I don't need to remember the damn title. Anyway, it's Food Fear. You can pick up yours on Amazon, but you know what? Screw Amazon. You can buy it at DamianMason.com and not have to cut them in for their cut because Jeffrey Bezos has enough money. Todd Thurman, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. And then I also want to apologize, dear viewer and listener. I know we cut out a couple times. We're doing this via Zoom call. And in case you haven't paid any attention, Zoom has gotten like 50 times the amount of usage in the last two weeks since everybody is working from home. So they are a little bit taxed. Bandwidths are being stretched. And that's the reason there's a little bit of warbling. I do apologize. Till next time, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again, Todd. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.